Thank you. Um, so we've been teaching through James, and uh, again, we, we've got just, I think, three more weeks um, t- today um, as we continue, just to remind us of kind of the important posture of James. All throughout this letter from Jesus's half-brother, who didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah until after his death and resurrection, and observed him his whole life, and observed his, observed his whole earthly ministry without belief. So you know it's real. You, you know that it was measured. You know that the surrender came from a deep place. But he's inviting, calling, and charging us to this life that is undivided. This life that is wholeheartedly, um, just, all, just wholeheartedly for our God, wholeheartedly for His purpose and His glory. And He's just been, in, again, it's this weird like experience of like it's invitational, it's inspiring, it's convicting. But that's been the posture of this whole letter. And, it's, and, it's, and, you know, and as it all comes back to, it's all for us, as we think about the faith, our faith uh, as a Christ follower being lived out, it's much more than just an adherence to a moral code or, or, or a belief system. But it's a whole new identity, and that's, what, that's, that's why this call to be undivided has, has been th- threaded throughout this entire letter. And so it is this invitation, call, and compelling, and conviction towards living the undivided life that's been reconciled by Christ, is lived unto Christ, and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we, can, we continue that today, and we're, and we're going to sit on one verse, one verse. James 5.12. And today's verse brings us to the beginning of James's, of his letter's conclusion. And, I, and, and as we come to this first word, it says, above all. He says, above all, and he goes into this verse. And just to kind of make it clear, it's not, he's not saying that this, this, what I'm saying in this sentence, is more important than everything else I've taught. It's quite obvious if you think about all that he's taught us uh, and been leading us to. What he is saying is, hey, don't miss this. Yes, I'm closing, but don't miss this. Don't tune out. I want you to make sure you catch this. And the reason why is because I think this verse is the summary statement of the entire letter. It really is. It's the summary statement. It sums it all up. If you want, if you want to have a package that has it all, this is it. So all of this letter, we love James because it's practical. We hate James because it's practical, right? I mean, it hits us. It's, it's like, okay, so now I know what to do, but oh, that's what I got to do? But, but here, this sums it all up, okay? So this is great. So today as we come to this, it's such a simple summary statement. It's short, but it truly wraps everything up. And, and, I, and I dare to say that if, if we can hold to this teaching, we'll also live out the rest of the way of life that James has been calling us to. So let's read this verse, and we're going to work through it quickly. I, I anticipate this to be a shorter message I'm, 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 for multiple reasons. Um, one is that if we go too long, who knows what's going to happen. But I, I just think it's just simple, and so I just want to keep it simple and, and, let, and let the truth do its work. So here we go. It says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, I'm going to start my timer. Just because when I say it's short, it never is. So, 
and I already docked myself five minutes, so you're good, okay? So, so <laughs> even though I already took more than five, but, well, you know. But, so let me remind you what James has just covered previously in his letter. You know, we look at it in verses. Last week, we covered a few verses. We covered seven through 11, and it was this call, this call to patience. We got to remember what his audience was living in. They were Jewish believers, Jewish Christ followers who were living scattered, because of, because of the occupying Romans, and, and they were living scattered, so they were oppressed, they were marginalized, and even persecuted. We've heard that a bunch throughout this, throughout uh, teaching James. But that we have to remember that that's who he's writing to. So last week was this great call to patience in the midst of. It's like, it wasn't like, hey, it'll get better. It possibly, I mean, he didn't promise that it would get better in this life. He's like, yes, it will get better, but it may be the eternal promise. But so it was this call to patience in the midst of oppression, trials, and adversity. And he was saying, stay the course, trust in God's work, trust in his, in his way, and trust in his law of love and live it out. Was this, so it was just kind of this, 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 this heralding call, this, this uh, stirring up and calling us back to what's important, reminding us. And so, so now, I think kind of continuing in that same, again, kind of like bringing it home, James is calling us to the truth. Uh, to the truth itself, which is a call out of using our words to relieve the strain. Before, it was using our behavior, using our actions, using our wills to, to, to relieve strain instead of trusting God. Now he's saying, avoid using your words to relieve the strain instead of trusting in our steadfast God and His good truth. So again, like I said, I want to keep today just really, really simple. So I'm going to cover just a little bit of context um, but not a whole lot. Uh, here, James, just, just like much of his letter, if, if you want to go read the Sermon on the Mount alongside the letter of James, I mean, you, you see that he was influenced by Jesus and more than influenced, changed. Um, but this, he's quoting, I mean, it's really right in line with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Um, and Jesus was, was quoting Leviticus 19 of, of again, uh, not making a false oath. Um, and I'm not going to cover a lot of context because we just taught that last spring. We just taught that text last spring. Uh, if you want to go look it up, March the 13th of 2016, um, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, if you want a lot more context um, of kind of what was happening in the culture, how the Pharisees were treating oaths, kind of the nuances of the ways that they were twisting oaths. Um, but I think we can get to the main point without having to go through all that context. But again, March 13th, 2016, you can go listen to that if you want all the kind of more historical, con cultural context. What I will say is that the religious, the religious, the religious elite, the Pharisees and those who were just religious people were using oaths to increase their influence. They were using them to, to increase their influence and using them in such a way to leave a way out if, the, if their situation became unfavorable. So they're making this promise by some form this oath by some form, but, but, but leaving a way that they can kind of skirt out or, in, or increase the benefit to themselves. So that's kind of the, the tone. That's the context. That's enough, I think, for us to cover what we're talking about. Uh, and, and so we're going to actually skip to the very last words here because I, I don't want us to miss the loving warning James ends with. And it's important because this warning is actually the anchor of the teaching of this verse. The first part that it said, you know, it says, lest you fall into condemnation, right? Um, Yes, let, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The first part uh, before that of this verse is the command. 
right? Let your yes be yes, your no be no, and this, this instruction of what that looks like. It's a command, and, and this is the purpose of the command. The purpose of the command is that we would not fall into condemnation. And then why would you want to avoid it? So all condemnation is rooted in, in, in mankind's rebellion against God and the elevation of self over God. So to make an oath in a way that declares your force and ability over God is to deny the sovereign provision that belongs to God. And if we believe that God is our holy, sovereign creator, then we have to find that reverence and that, that, that humbling of self under his, his rule, under his his authority. You know, and, and we were talking yesterday about calling God holy. And I don't, you know, if you grew up around this conversation, if you grew up in the church or it was something you heard, like holy is just kind of, I think it's kind of lost what it means. Like we, we kind of just think, okay, so when we think of holy, what is holy? Oh, God is holy. That's holy. You know, and, and, and I think sometimes we forget the force, like the, the magnitude of what that statement is saying. It is, that is a statement of the of the whole otherness of God, the whole other quality of God, that there is, he is totally set apart. Like we talk about us, that we're called to be holy, that we're made holy in Christ, that we are set apart as Christ has done his work and we're, and we're set apart for his holy purpose, right? We talk about that for us. Well, it's this, that, again, that's only an expression of who God is. He is wholly set apart because of who he is, because of his, he is, he is not just loving, he is love. He is not just merciful, he's merciful. He's not just, he doesn't just act justly, he is just. He is, he is not temporary, he's eternal, he's not changing, he is unchanging. We are none of those right? We act loving. We act merciful. We show justice and pursue it sometimes. We're not eternal. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipotent. Now there are, because we are created in his image, of course, we do show those characteristics, right? We do show love in those things, but this is, this is calling us to a wholly different God, the only one who is worthy to say we have rebelled against and actually bring us to consequence. So that's what this is calling us. He's saying, hey, don't run towards condemnation. I mean, think about this. If you are in Christ, if you have said, hey, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and God loves me enough that he sent his only son at great expense to himself to save me when he shouldn't have and didn't have to, and now I have, got, I have restored life, restored promise, and I'm new in him. I mean, if that's true, and that runs deep, I mean, think about how egregious it is to make a false oath invoking the name of God to strengthen your own position. How find ourselves with the evil one? <laughs> right? I mean, hopefully that hits us. Like, because it's not just the big obvious ones where we, where we think about it and we have to make a choice, do we lie or not? It's the ones that are just almost like a norm of our posture that we don't even think twice about. But we don't want to align ourselves with the evil one. I mean, Satan is the evil one. Some people get weird when you say the name, but his name, but that's his name, and he is the evil one, and he's the father of lies. He's a deceiver above all else. He has no power over God, so all he can do is deceive. His aim is to distract and deceive the world from the truth of God. The God, again, let's just say it one more time, who is holy, who is sovereign, who created us, who is also a loving heavenly father, who has adopted us as sons and daughters through the reconciling work of Christ. We can't say that enough. So to lie 
is to align ourselves, to diminish the truth is to align ourselves with the one that wants to erase that reality from this world. To deny the reality and work of God is to bring that condemnation on ourselves. Man. So hopefully we're motivated now, right? So that's the, that's the reason. That's the reason. So here's our command, all right? So, we, so, so now we know our need. Let's go, up, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go up the hill or whatever the analogy is there. The center of this summary teaching is that we who are reconciled, renewed, and redeemed by Jesus should be people of truth, right? I mean, after all, John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And as we are restored in him, God's image is restored in us. We are people of truth because we are people of Christ. He has done that work to make us Jesus people. Yet, you know, it sounds like a weird 70s movement or something. But, but, but we are. I mean, like that, we are people of the way. We're people. We're Jesus people. Like we're meant to be taken, like we're given, we're imparted his character, his, his, all that he is. We're made into that likeness because we were created that. It's restored. So now we're Jesus people. So because he is truth, we should be truth. We can evidence this by avoiding, here's our two things for today. We can evidence this by avoiding duplicity and pursuing integrity. This is what it is to let our yes be yes and our no be no. So what is duplicity? Really quickly, like we're gonna, I'm telling you, this is a fast sermon. I love this. Don't, don't get used to it, though. So what is duplicity? Um, this is your first time. This is not normal, okay? So this, anyway. Um, but what is duplicity? Like, again, just kind of very practically speaking, I mean, duplicity is deceitfulness, right? But I, I think of it, like, when I think about it, because I think there's a little bit more to it than that. When I think about duplicity, you know, it's, the way I would define it is to be, du- du- to be duplicitous is to measure your, your, your level of truth-telling according to how it benefits you. And we're really good at sprinkling in enough truth to bring weight to what we say, but yet not speak the full truth. I think Psalm 55, 21 describes this really well. It's a great example of a duplicitous person. It says, his speech was smooth as butter. This is literally the translation. I did change the pronunciation. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer, softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. That's duplicity. Measuring the level of truth you tell according to how it benefits you. Using the truth to benefit you. So I think a great question that comes to mind when we think of the duplicitous posture, the duplicitous motive, is that question of motive. What motivates your truthfulness? You know, is it what benefits you? Or is it the opportunity to proclaim the loving grace of God and His truth over you first, right? Because oftentimes our duplicity is to hide something. It's not always to gain something. So first off, we get to proclaim that loving grace and truth over us. But then also we get to proclaim that loving grace of, that loving truth of grace that leads to the flourishing of his creation, that leads to the glorifying of God in all the earth. We long for all kinds of purpose, 
We have all kinds of ambitions. But I, there is nothing greater. There's nothing that more that ultimately satisfies other than a life that glorifies God. I'm not saying ambition is bad. I'm not saying working hard and having goals is bad. But if they lead towards anything other than the glory of God, then let's realign. But what motivates your truthfulness? So we want to avoid duplicity, right? We want to avoid duplicity. That's kind of the pursuit of truthfulness in the negative. Avoid duplicity. So what's the pursuit of truthfulness in the positive? It is to pursue integrity. So what is integrity? 2 Corinthians 8.21 says this, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Another way that we can refer to integrity is doing what's right even when no one's looking. It's the fact that truth prevails no matter where you are, what you're doing, who's watching, who's not. Truth prevails. Truth matters. Truth reigns in you. It overwhelms and overtakes and dictates. And it's not, and praise God for the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, God has given himself and the Holy Spirit to us to empower and align our lives towards truth. So integrity is an absolute commitment to not just speak truth, but to embody truth at all times. So it's not just the words, but it's the life. So we avoid duplicity. We, we pursue integrity. What James is really calling us to is a life that reeks, becomes a Heath word, of truthiness. We want our life to reek of truthiness. And reek, is there a better word than reek? Because as I wrote that down, I was like, that sounds negative. It's like, it's like a skunk reeks. So, so someone give me a better word. So I'm going to go with radiates. I love that. Thanks, Mike. What James is really calling us to is a life that radiates truthiness. Like it's, it's not just a characteristic. It's, it's a whole other substance. It's like a substance of your life. Truthiness. Our, our lives and our words should have the force of truth. The force of God's liberating changing, transforming truth. That's what, that's what James is calling us to. It's what, it's what the cross has, has, has released in us. That our lives carry the force of truth. But before we unpack that fully, let me answer one more question. And I'm sure you're asking, what motivates us to deny or diminish truth? Which is both falsity, right? And... and as I, as I was praying through this and thinking on it, it comes down to, I think, two things, a false idol or a false identity. Those are the two things that motivate us to, to deceive, to hide, to diminish. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we have elevated above God, anything that we have deemed more worthy of our devotion, more worthy of our pursuit, more worthy, more, more capable to, to facilitate comfort, deliverance, freedom, belonging, validation. God has promised to be all those things in us, for us, in Christ. So when we, when we think about something that we've elevate, elevated above God, we will deny truth because that becomes our mark, that becomes our goal, that becomes what is most important, it becomes our ruler. So we see that a false idol motivates. 
And then we have the false identity. And this is all identity talk, by the way. It's identity. To live undivided is nothing other than living out who you are by the work completed in Christ. He made you totally new. He took you from being an outcast, a rebel, and an orphan to being one of his own, adopted as sons and daughters, made heirs, sons and daughters of a king. Totally new. And just once again to highlight how God is different than us, you know, we're friends with the Tuarts. Autumn and Nora are their kids. They come to our house. Let's say they came to our house more. We would like them to. <laughs> and when they come to our house, they would operate under our house rules. And they would get to know us, and, and they would kind of learn our language. And they would take on more of the Haynes characteristics. Sorry, Tuarts. Um, but would they ever be our kids? They never be our kids. Not fully. They're always going to be the tourist kids. You know, God invites us into his house and actually makes us his kids. Again, I mean, we have a great picture with the Janots. We're fostering and working areas, alleys and children's. Fostering and working to adopt. We see their beautiful boy, Sean. They're, they're taking him in as their own. They're saying, this boy is flesh of my flesh. He's Jack's brother. He's our son. They can't infuse their blood into Sean. But that's the, what a beautiful picture that we have here on earth of the way that God works. Because he actually infuses us with his blood, with his likeness. We are totally changed. And so we're talking identity. So when we have a false identity, when all of a sudden we define ourselves in some other way than that of who we are in Christ and the work he's completed in us, we must protect that identity. Plain and simple. A couple of examples that came to mind. If you're defined by your ability, by your competency, by, which relates to work achievement, position, prestige, you'll exaggerate your impact or hide your shortcomings. That's, that's at the least at the most, you'll cheat, steal, and lie. Another example, if you're defined by how good of a parent you are, you'll make, you'll make excuses for your, your child when they're not perfect. You'll exaggerate their accomplishments. You'll deny them the gift that God has given all of us in grace to be imperfect. I mean, it just applied across the board. What if, what if it's your intellect you're, and you're a student? Play it out. So truthiness. It's a funny word. What do I, what do I mean by it? Our, our lives, like I already said, and our words should have the force of truth. It means that we're undivided, that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, it is the same. So James is saying, hey, don't make oaths. Don't make promises. We just watched this hilarious video last week, and it's been around for a while. Jimmy Kimmel does this thing, and it's Lie Witness News. And he goes around, and he went to, to South by Southwest. And he's walking up and down the street, and he has this person going around asking them, like, hey, what do you think of such and such band? And they're just making bands up. 
They're like, you know, what do you think of, uh, of uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher's purse? Like, it's literally that insane. That is not one of the examples. I made that up because I can't remember any of them. But it's something as insane as that. And the person's like, oh, you know, I, I really think they're the next big wave of, uh, of uh, independent music. You know, I really, you know, they're catchy. And it's like, oh, okay. So, like, do you, like, and then they'll ask them, you know, which song do you like the best? And I'm making this up, but it'll be something like, you know, lipstick on my hand or I can't find my keys. You know, like literally, and they're like, I really think, you know, I can't find my keys is great. It kind of speaks to man searching for meaning. And like, it is literally just that <laughs> absurd. But what's amazing is how many people, when they're asked a question, they say something like, to be honest, I, uh, and then they'll give their answer. Well, man, honestly speaking, I mean, we just, I mean, it happened so many times. And it's like they knew they were lying, so they had to bring a force to make their lie more believable. And this is what James is calling us beyond. He said, your life, he's saying your life should have such a force of truth that you don't need to add to it for people to believe it because you are the people of truth. Because what are we? We're Jesus people, right? He's truth. And so he's saying, like, live your life in a way that you don't need to, you don't need to call on any other oath. You don't need to add any other force to it to be believable. Are you dependable? Do you go where you say you're going to go? Do you do what you say you're going to do? Do you show up when you say you're going to be there? Do you, do you mean what you say and say what you mean? I think that's Dr. Seuss. He's pretty wise. Horton, here's a who, right? So good. Isn't that right? Yeah. Good theology comes from all kinds of places. But that's, I mean, is that, how does that hit you? Is that inspiring or terrifying? If it's terrifying, remember grace. Today, if your life has been marked by selfish ambition, by diminishing truth to require less or hide shortcomings or to manipulate a favorable outcome, if that's been what you, or you're just a liar, a stealer, and a cheat, if that's been you up to today, you know, the grace of God removes comfort because it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. So yes, feel the weight, but yet also hear the invitation. Say, God, as I am, as I am, I come to you. And if that's a, a, a first time acknowledging that actually you might need someone else to save you, and that because God loves you, he did that for you in Christ, or whether it's, man, I've, I've, I've only done the minimum. Yeah, I, I get it. Jesus is real, and he's Man, he, he, he's claimed my heart and my life, but yet I've, I have definitely tucked some spaces away. There's grace. So respond to God's invitation to surrender all that that is. And step into this undivided life, this life that is whole in Christ. We've said this before, and I'll explain these terms, but a life that has the force of truth is the life that becomes a hermeneutic and an apologetic for the truth of the gospel of Jesus, for the truth of God. Hermeneutic is that which helps us to interpret and understand. And apologetic is that which defends the veracity of its truth claims. So your life, your life 
that just has this force of truth that when you say yes, people believe that they're saying you're saying yes because they've seen it. It's proved out over time. When you say no, they know it's no. They, they, they've seen you commit to absolute integrity. When you stumble and fall, you own up to it. When you fall short on a project at work, you say, man, I, 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 I definitely didn't measure up this one. You know, you know and, and then you go forward from there. Or if you just didn't do it, I didn't do it. <laughs> Instead of excusing around it. So when you live this way of life that you're free because this world does not define you and your hope is not limited to the, to the 70-something, 80 years or more or less that you have, all of a sudden you're freed up to point to Jesus in any way possible. You're freed up to rest in the truth of God. So that's how our life can actually help people understand the, the truth claims. That's how our life can defend the reality of who God is. We're not perfect. You don't have to be perfect for this to happen. In your imperfection, you get, to, you get to illuminate it all the more as you repent, confess, and share that amongst people that need to hear it. And I'm going to say one last thing. Uh, actually, we're going to have two last moments. Nobody. So this week, we talked a lot about basically truthfulness in our lives this weekend with the guys. Um, and, and we talked kind of about the kind of the masks we wear, walls we build up to protect, and, uh, and just the liberating work of the truth of God. Um, and so nobody knows that I'm about to ask, but if there's any guys that uh, went on the retreat this weekend that would like to sh- share their main, one, one guy, not a bunch of guys, one guy, um, would like to share in two or three minutes kind of their kind of takeaway around this idea. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. There you go. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So thank you. Um, I realized really for the first time, I think that um, the value of the relationships that can exist between men, particularly um, I'm trying to follow Jesus. And, um, you know, it's you need that deep relationship with a man because I kind of, I you know, because your wife wasn't made to absorb, like, everything that you need out of relationship. And I kind of, and I realized I thought that, I think. So probably going back to college, I never just really had an easy time, like, really getting to know men really well. And so for the purpose of ministry, how much more important would it be for, for men to, like, just dig into each other and build each other up in Christ? And I realized I think the women at this church do this really well. And... Uh, and it's pretty apparent, I think. And not that the men are, are bad, but I know, you know, but like the women really just stand out. And I realized, like, what if the men were, were like really like close to each other like this and building each other up in Christ? I mean, what would that mean for like the ministry here? So for myself, like that was a, like just a new thing. And so I was grateful for that. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. So. <clears throat> How liberating it is to know that truth's God reigning over our life is actually a great thing. 
it, it, you know, perfect love casts out fear, and God's truth is love. And so to think about that, I mean, like, we as men, we, we build walls and protect ourselves, and so to invite others in. And then just to give the full picture, because we do have a high view of marriage, one of the things we talked about is, you know, yes, like, I think, and Matt, you said it last night, and you kind of allude to it now, is that our, our man, a man's need for relational intimacy is, is meant to go beyond just his wife. Um, and, and, and yet we want to have this absolute sharing of journey with our wives. And so we talked about like, hey, yes, that you may not dump everything on them, but yet what they do need to know is that you've got men in your life that will fight for your marriage and that she can go to to say, hey, I think my husband may be in sin and I need help confronting him. Like that's, so that's the, the full picture of this beauty of actually kind of souls lay bare because we're redeeming Christ. And guess what Romans 8.1 says? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you're like, does that contradict what this verse is saying? No, because we're talking about ultimate condemnation. We're talking about the, call, the condemnation that leads to destruction. And when you've called on Christ, again, you are fully restored. You're made new. Yes, you experience consequences along the way. And that's the condemnation the, 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 for believers is that, again, you get comfort removed so that you'll return to God. But when you all of a sudden realize that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because he has made us new, we can repent, confess, believe, be restored every single time. And he always sees us as innocent because it's his blood over us. We get to invite each other into that. So cool picture. Thanks for sharing that with us, Matt. And uh, wives, thanks for putting up with all of us. Um, and then one last freebie. The force of truth in your life, having the force of truth to it, is the greatest evangelistic effort in, 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 I don't like the word tool, but tool you could ever have. And when I say evangelistic, just to be clear, I'm just talking about the, the work of the, the, the message of Jesus Christ being the hope of the world, being prepared, propelled through you to your neighbor, your co-worker, and to the ends of the earth. The force of truth in your life is the greatest asset you have to make a change in this world to that end. And, I, and I'll, I'll introduce the thought through a story of my brother-in-law. He's an executive at a, 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 at a bank, and he's led so many of his coworkers to Christ. I mean, so many. And, and I mean, he has, he's a phenom. Like, he's skyrocketed, juggernaut, whatever that word is. Like, he's, he's just, like, skyrocketed to the top of, of, from when he came out of college, and he's the youngest executive at the... And so he's, never, he's successful, but yet he's led so many people to Christ. And we asked him, how, like, how has this happened? And he's like, well, I just I kind of live by a simple rule. He said, and it, kinda, it comes from the Ten Commandments. I just never lie. And he said, so when people ask me what I did this weekend, I say, well, you know, we had a great date night Friday night. You know, hung out with my kids Saturday morning. You know, da, da, da. Went to church Sunday morning. You know, that's some weekends. Some weekends, it's, you know, man, we had a, you know, we had a friend that passed away and, or, you know, and we went there and loved on them. He just tells the simple truth. Like, on that broader spectrum, then, hey, why are you, like, you're different about how you lead. How, like, what's different? And he actually talks about convictions, and he actually he doesn't do it in a preachy way, or he just talks about that he's, he's changed, he has a greater motive, he's not, he doesn't, this, this job doesn't define him. And so just think about the simplicity of that. Like, what, like for Christians, what is the most guilt-inducing thing? What are one of the most guilt-inducing things we all face? We all feel like we don't share our faith enough. 
you know, the other one's prayer and maybe reading the Bible. We all heap guilt on ourselves over that. Just think of the simplicity just of that, the force of truth in your life, just never lying. You know, you think about what Peter said in, in, in 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. That is what he's talking about. It's not like, have, you know, it's not having your, your, your gun loaded, just waiting and all of a sudden like you, you, you unleash and people are like, their hair's back and they're blasted with, with some evangelical diatribe. You know, it's, it's real because it's who you are. You're just sharing the truth of your life that has been changed in Christ. Your motives are changed. Your, your, your understanding's changed. Your hope is changed. And so if, if, if you're a Christ follower, man, latch on to it. If this sounds for, foreign and hooey, I, I encourage you to dig in and just play it out. There's freedom in this. There's, no, there's freedom nowhere else. And so our life should have the force of truth because we are totally changed in Christ. We're made a people of truth in Christ. We are wholly changed, and therefore our life should wholly reflect that God is good and will not reject you or punish you for doing the very thing you need. So come to him, confess, and be restored. Don't hide. His grace has covered you. The work is complete. Jesus is the only one who can make you free, and not just free from chains, but free in truth. Your need is great, yes, but his grace is sufficient.